Maybe we make it longer. That's what she said. Just make sure I'm all tight. Tight, aw. Oh, yeah, we have drinks today. Cocktails. I love cocktails. You're terrible. This is an adult podcast, so it's okay. Some long beaches, and I don't even know if it really counts because there's no rum, and yours doesn't have vodka. (laughs) Mine just tastes like gin and juice. It's gin, juice, and tequila, and then you have some mango popsicles in there. Sipping on gin and juice. I'm taking a picture of where you put your drink because that is so precarious. Living on the edge. Yeah, you ha- you I really like to live on the edge. My computer could go down at any moment because of this drink. I know, and then I should all probably the- move it. To be honest, yeah, and then all the people who have been begging for this podcast part two are going to be pissed because it'll be even more delayed. Because I'd have to go out and get another computer. I mean, I have my Mac here, and I really don't think you'd want to deal with all that. I don't even know if I can run Audacity on a Mac. Right. Okay, so you ready to get started? Absolutely. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off, had an accident, got his tree, and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. Okay, welcome back to Inside the Aluminum Tube, which is the aviation history podcast. Together with my returning co-host, who is not an aviation expert, we look at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mere mishaps, and the occasional mystery like today. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator. If you want to see pictures of the events, we talk about it and enhance your experience, and this time you definitely will. You should follow me on Instagram at AluminumTube. You can email me your ideas at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com or go to AluminumTubePodcast.com or ALTubePodcast.com where you can join my Patreon. It's just $3. Uh, tip me, get decals, meet the co-hosts, and listen to episodes. My returning co-host today is Mary. Sup? But uh, my podcast has been pretty flat in growth lately. I think it's because I have trouble publishing so often because I've been super busy with my job. Right. I, I think that's like the... Anyway. But I'm, I was just going to ask each person that listens to this to tell one person about my podcast today. Like when you listen to it, just go tell somebody, one person. Since your last episode came out, I've told... Probably six people. Awesome. And I've given out four decals. I will give you more decals today. Thank you. I pour my heart into this podcast, as you know. and Lots of hours. Lots of hours. And I really want to see it grow. And I appreciate all my listeners. So all I'm asking is just tell one person. You, this is literally a passion project. I mean, you do this in your free time. And I don't know if you've said this on your podcast before, but like... Not only are you like a full-time pilot, you also have kids. So you yep. have to, like when you're not flying, you're being a dad. And then it's like I have trying, other, right, trying I to have, get in the hours of doing it I while they're at school. I have other hobbies on top of that and my social mm-hmm. life. And yeah, it's really hard. I, I had started my master's and then I had to stop. I know you and you like to give it your all into something. Right. And you can't do that. And also sleep and eat 
and <laughs> be a healthy, well-rounded human. Right. So I'm a little overworked, but I, I try to publish as often as I can. It takes me a long time to write these. But anyway, that's fine. Let's just get on. So before we get started today, I had a listener question that we have to address. Okay. And the question comes from previous co-host, Callie Duncan. She's from the episode called The Wasp. Y'all recorded on a boat, right? We did in uh, Dominican Republic. She is, I think, in Australia right now. Uh, She wrote me this question when she was in like Turks and Caicos or something. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of an interesting question. Uh, We're going to get to that question before before the story. So here's the question. Okay. You read the question. Okay, Shannon. I have a question from Callie. Yeah. How do airlines account for the weight and distribution of carry-on luggage? She goes on to say that we could get a lot of weight into a small bag, like books or dive weights. Also, how do you account for passenger weights and distribution as well without weighing each person in their bags individually? Which is a very interesting question, and I have heard stories of when it's a very empty plane. Yes. They'll maybe ask somebody to move. Correct. Thanks for the question, Callie. I'm not sure she's going to be satisfied with the answer, though. (laughs) Okay. Airlines typically use an average weight for the combined weight of passenger and their bag, and the airlines typically vary these weights by season. We also, on the last episode, talked about how we went up in a tiny plane and to they go weighed see us. the Grand Canyon. Yeah, and they weighed us and they told us where we had to sit. Well, in single engine airplane, they have to weigh each person, actually. Mm-hmm. But that was a single engine airplane. When we're talking about airlines, they just use a combined weight or like an average weight. And again, they use a higher weight in the winter. Callie is correct in pointing out that because most... We, sorry, because we put on some winter weight or because No, because of you carry more cold. stuff in the winter. Oh, right, right. You carry jackets sense. and yeah, you carry yeah. like other things. Okay. But Callie is correct in pointing out that most airlines don't weigh passenger carry-ons. But most airlines do have a passenger carry-on policy to the max weight if you read the fine print. Really? It's typically 40 pounds or 18 kilograms, but it can vary a little bit. So the airlines know that some bags will exceed the limits, but they also know that 95% of them won't. I know dive weights is like very kind of obvious because it's literally weights, but what is like some of the heaviest things you think somebody could carry on like i i don't know what we could put on there besides like dive weights or i don't really know books i guess she said books but some sort of machinery maybe but the philosophy here is that if each passenger and their bags is assumed to weigh let's say like 190 pounds or 85 kilograms then as long as they aren't all concentrated to the very front or the very rear the average is going to be good enough okay i say typically because in The case of certain types of small aircraft, like we just talked about, everybody has to be weighed individually, but we're talking about big airliners here. I think that's Mm -hmm. Kelly's question. It's interesting that some planes have systems that sense the weight of the plane, center of gravity of the plane. For example, the Boeing 787 weighs itself, and it knows where the center of gravity is. Is that just on like newer planes? Is that Um, a new technology? You could get that on Airbus as an option. Some older planes may have that, but it is very much more a new technology. But not all airplanes can do this. So due to a lot of experience with passenger density and computerized seating Mm -hmm. assignments and stuff, the seemingly random distribution of passengers and baggage works out, but only most of the time. (laughs) Right, because there are those situations where there's no 
the plane's half empty and everyone's in the back because nobody wanted to pay for business or whatever. Let's talk about how airplanes are built. Airplanes are built in such a way that they have a very large acceptable window for what is essentially safe and weighs the correct amount. The engineers basically made the acceptable area quite large. Yeah. They did it on purpose because they have big, powerful engines. They have long runways. And we use a highly variable fuel load. The people in charge of loading the plane would have a hard time getting the airplane out of balance, to be honest. It gets more complex as the airplane gets smaller. But again, airlines have a really long history of average weights working out. Right. They Have you ever experienced or know of a story where it's been an issue? <laughs> I, have a, I have a little experience where we had to add a weight factor to pretend the airplane weighed more, to make it go faster, right. to compensate. But I've never seen it out of balance in an airliner. However, in corporate operations, I have seen it out of balance. Do you weigh people in corporate? No. We okay. use an you, assumed weight as well. Because they're not single-engine planes. So it can get complicated with corporate jets. But again, we're talking about airliners. But check this out. In June 2003, an MD-88 taking off from an airport in the Netherlands, which is what a big, is the, an, an MD-88, MD-88. Is, a, is a big airliner based okay. on the DC-9. What, what's, what is it similar to that I would recognize? It would be in similar size to like a, a 737. Okay. So it had problems rotating when it was ready to pull the nose off. Oh, okay. And point the nose at the sky, right? So it was ready to take off, but it couldn't do it. The pilots rejected the takeoff and ended up in the grass at the end of the runway, but nobody was hurt. That's good. The investigation determined that the airline underestimated the average weight of passengers making the plane 2,500 pounds heavier than they thought, and the Mm. passengers were not equally distributed throughout the plane due to the airline's free seating policy. There were too many of those people sitting up front. Nobody wanted to sit in the back, right. and it wasn't a full plane. So right. the airline free seating policy like Southwest has, yeah. everybody just sat in, in the front. Right, because you want to be first off. What year was that? That was in 2003. Okay. But check this out. Th- this kind of talks to what you were just saying. In another example, the pilots of a Boeing 737 taking off from Canberra um, in Australia mm-hmm. in 2014 had to use, quote, unquote, excessive force with both pilots pulling back on the yoke to get the airplane airborne. I think if you have to do that, maybe you should, like, not yeah, take they, off. Okay, that, that becomes very complex. We don't have time to talk about that right now. But they did the right thing. Anyway, again, upon investigation, it turned out that a very large group of preteens were on the plane. They accounted oh. for 87 of just 150 passengers they were traveling as a group. They were all entered into the system as adults. So they thought they were going to weigh more. They but gave they were... them an average weight as an right. adult, but they weighed less. Some well, of them could be like around 100 or less. Yeah, even. maybe if they're preteens, maybe 60 pounds. Yeah. All of them were assigned seats near the rear of the cabin, ultimately mm. making the front of the airplane heavy. So they had to use excessive forced to get off the ground do you know if how that would affect landing yes in this case the airplane um landed safely so what you would without do, issue because they knew correct they knew they had an issue so what would what would happen is 
they would increase the speed. Okay. Giving for them landing. more aerodynamic force over the tail. Got it. And that would be their landing speed. So I've worked for an aircraft manufacturer and I've worked with engineers on weight and balance issues. And as a rule, modern aircraft have much a much bigger problem with where the weight is as opposed to how much weight there is. Like we saw in the last right. two examples, it's never it's not really that much about like is the airplane Excessive too heavy. Weight. It's like where is the air where's the right. like where's it located? Now I have one more question to yeah. add on to this. Is it worse for there to be an imbalance from front to back or side to side? So it's impossible to get a significant imbalance from side to side. Why? Because it's just not that wide. Because it's not wide enough. Okay. Correct. Just curious. Yep. That makes sense. They have because when you say that, I'm like, yeah. I just hadn't fully thought that through. I worked all day, so my. If I'm, if you have to edit out any of me, like taking a minute to think about what you just said, <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I'm, everything you said has made sense. That's a really interesting question that she had. Right. And so because of the weight part, you know, modern engines are designed to run at like 80% of their maximum thrust for efficiency. So they have a lot of excess thrust if things get dicey or you need more performance. But as far as the center of gravity goes, the acceptable center of gravity envelope, if you will, yeah. can't be changed because it's part of the structural design of the air, airplane. So you can't affect that by adding power. Okay. That's like a fixed part of the design. It's not really about having too much weight necessarily. It's about where the weight is located. Episode, I think it's 13 with Aaron. Talking about the one in Africa. That was a weight shift accident. But everyone rushed to the front. To the front. And the plane pancaked yeah. was the word that you'd used. Correct. So Callie goes on to ask, have you ever gone over the carry-on limit? And the answer to that is, I don't think I've ever gone over the carry-on limit, even though my bag's been heavy, because I don't want to be pushing that bag up into the overhead bin and when it weighs right. more than 40 pounds. Like, it's really... Even when you've, like, carried your podcast gear and stuff? Probably not. It's probably been close. Right. I mean, If I ever went over, it, it would be by, like, a pound or two. Right. When I'm packing, like, my goal is for it to be as light as possible because I have to schlep it around, carry it. I mean, I live in New York, so I go up and down stairs with my backpack and my roller, like sometimes right like six sets of stairs just to get to the airport right so you don't want to be carrying a heavy bag no i, I understand and, and then i have to get it on the plane and put it in the carry-on area i hope that answered callie's question i'm not i don't know if it makes her feel better or worse so i'll follow <laughs> up with her and see what she thinks that was very interesting it's, it's an interesting question today we are doing part two I'm excited. Of Cursed, Haunted, Possessed. I'm excited to hear part two. I mean, the end of part one was really... The whole part one was very good. Um, Well, so far, right, what we've had is a tale about a Native American curse, which then we talked about societal and industrial disasters, hauntings, mothmen, and of course, a plane crash. But wait, there's more. And that's why we're here with part two. So for anyone who hasn't listened... Go listen to the previous episode, as this episode won't make much sense without listening to the first part. We had Cornstalk, right? Right. 
And then Sil- Silverheel was his brother. Yep. He laid a curse upon this land. That's where Mothman happened. The mining disaster. Mining disaster. We had the Silver Bridge disaster. Yes, the city never really flourished, even right. though it was a good spot in theory for for trade. Trade. Right. Where were we as far as the date? It was August tenth, nineteen sixty-eight. Is where we ended remember was that when the that's plane when, crash that happened, was when the piedmont 230 okay. crashed and crashed suddenly under somewhat mysterious circumstances whether right. it was a curse or not you know we, we talked kind about of that, like but, landed on either curse or complacency but seeing as we only made it to 1968 and today is 2022 i reckon to say there's probably more I would hope so since we're sitting here. All right. So you ready to talk about the airplane? Yeah. I did the research for this aircraft a while back in episode 17 called Siren's Call with my co-host Cindy Wallach. It's a great episode. I love Cindy as a co-host. And it's the same type of plane. So we're going to cover it really quickly. It's the the McDonnell Douglas DC-9. It's a narrow body, meaning it has a single aisle. Right. It has two seats and two seats in first class and two seats and then three seats on the other side in economy. So five across in economy and four across in first class. There's a picture of the airplane. Is that a company that still exists or are you going to get to that? We're going to get to that. That's the aviation history part. After Douglas produced the groundbreaking DC-8 in 1959, they designed and built the DC-9 for shorter flights and it was introduced in 1963. The DC-9 first flew in 1965 and it was certified in the same year with Delta Mm -hmm. Airlines as its launch customer. It had, recognized that airline. It was modern. It had a two-crew flight deck, for, but for that time, that was that was like a big deal. No flight engineer. No flight engineer. Because they had so much technology in the front. Yep. The DC-9 had rear-mounted engines, like you saw in the picture, so the engines are in the back, not under the wings. Which is new Which as is well. a cool design and a novel design for the time. It made it quieter. Unless you're in the back. Unless you're right there in the back, right. The elevator was mounted on top of the vertical stabilizer. It's called a T-tail configuration. I thought you um, meant elevator for a second. I was <laughs> like, this plane is not big enough for an elevator. I know some old planes had they stairs. Did. No, some old planes actually did have elevators. Catering no elevators. Yeah, catering elevators where they would m- move the food up and down because oh, the kitchen so, was in the bottom. Oh, okay, so not like for people. Like no. those service. Like a service elevator. Catering. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. So this configuration had a lot of advantages, including a clean wing with larger, more effective control surfaces because there's nothing on it. There's no right. engine on the wing. There's nothing. So smoother, quieter in the cabin, like we said, because the engines are mounted high and in the very back. This configuration is still the most popular configuration in corporate jets um, because of these advantages. If you're paying that much to fly somewhere, you want it to be nice and quiet and right. comfortable. And the, and the other thing that makes this airplane kind of interesting is because the engines are so high, they're not going to suck in debris from the ground. So this aircraft was certified to do what's called a power back from the gate instead of a pushback. Oh, so so does that mean you don't need a ground crew? In some airports, you didn't need a ground crew. You could actually back up. Like a car. Like a car. The the original DC-9 production ended in 1983. Then the name was changed to the MD-80. And we just talked about an MD-88. So that looks very similar to that. Mm -hmm. The MD-90 and eventually the design was bought by Boeing. They renamed it the 717. However, production for that variant ended in 2006. Got it. 
Delta flew the original DC-9 design until 2014. Wow. Does anyone fly this anymore? There are many companies still operating the DC-9, mostly for freight. However, the later 717 is still being operated in passenger service in the United States, both by Hawaiian Airlines and Delta Airlines. Oh, okay. They were a huge commercial success, selling about 2,500 units between 1965 and 2006. But for some perspective, the Airbus A320 and the Boeing 737 have each outsold that aircraft by four to five times. Okay, wow. The Airbus is a newer design, right? So This was designed in 1963. The Airbus was not designed in until the 80s yeah and the 737 has been designed and redesigned and redesigned and redesigned Mm -hmm. and kept up to like a modern-ish standard which is why you hear like still hear 737 while you're hearing 787 but you're not hearing 717 correct got it so on an interesting note the original sevens sorry (laughs) so on an interesting note the original tooling for the manufacture of the dc-9 was sold to the chinese who still manufacture a very similar aircraft called the Comac ARJ-21 Zhengfeng. You talk so fast sometimes that I don't absorb it. The original tooling, so the everything for mm-hmm. the original manufacturer of the DC-9 was sold to the Chinese. Yeah. They still manufacture a, a very similar aircraft called the Comac yeah. ARJ-21 Zhengfeng. Do they have to say that every time? I, that's a lot of letters and numbers, but it, it means soaring phoenix. It's badass. And it's still <laughs> being produced and operated in several Asian uh, countries and by okay. carriers. So this aircraft has a rich history. It's very safe. It's always been incredibly reliable. That's great. That's why people probably still use it for yeah. like freight. And- oh, definitely. Yeah. And it was always a two-pilot aircraft. Not, It didn't need a flight engineer. So do you have any questions about the DC-9, the venerable DC-9? Nope. So let's talk about the company. Southern Airways was an American airline founded by Frank Hulse. Can I guess? Was it based in the South? Yes. Because it was called... Southern. <laughs> uh, it was established in 1949. At the time, it oh, was... Wow. It was called a local service airline. Today, we'd call that a regional airline. Right. Southern Airways routes covered the South Central U.S. Sorry, so more like Texas, Utah. Well, I'm about to tell you. Okay. So in 1955, their network spanned roughly the area from Charlotte west to Memphis Hmm. and down to New Orleans and then east over to Jacksonville and back up to Charlotte. So kind of the deep south. Okay. They just kind of covered the deep south. South Central. I did say South Central U.S. It really is the Deep South. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. In 1953, Southern flew to 29 airports, but by 1967, that number had grown to 50. Southern Airways provided air service to communities that would be unprofitable for a non-subsidized airline, so they oh. were subsidized. Today, we call that essential air service. Mm-hmm. Back then, they didn't have a name for it, but it mm-hmm. was a subsidized air carrier so that you... If you lived in, let's say, Hickory, North Carolina, you wouldn't have to drive all the way to Charlotte to get on an airplane. You could just get on at your local airport. Right. Now, that wasn't profitable, but the government gave them money to do that, to connect to those communities. That's still a thing, right? It is still a thing, but it's much more limited now. Okay. By the late 1970s, Southern's system had expanded west as far as Denver, north as far as Detroit, south to Fort Lauderdale, and Grand Cayman in the Caribbean. That was oh, cool. Southern's only international destination was Grand Cayman. Have you been there? I have. 
How is it? Uh, it's an island. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about them. Clear blue waters, white sands. That's a cool poster from the 1970s. It is cool. Yeah, that's going to be on the Instagram. It's like, that's when they opened their Denver base. They started yeah. advertising Denver. It's kind of cool. Is that the like state flower? I don't know. That's a good question. Because it's kind of random to throw There's in like there. a flower there and then there's like a goat. That might be the state animal. If know. they were going to throw a flower on a poster today, it would be a weed leaf for Denver. A weed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Southern Airways called itself the root of the aristocrats. And they used the slogan, nobody's second class on Southern. In their television commercials, which are available on YouTube, I <gasps> think you should watch them. They are super freaking funny Any they were 80s famous commercial they were famous that they were 70s commercials and they were famous. oh 70s sorry they were famous for their for their like first class quote second class but they're saying nobody's second class on southern so those commercials are funny you should yeah. look up southern air I would love to. southern airways commercials on youtube they're great they were famous for promotional shot glasses and differently designed Woo! shot glasses were issued each year original southern airways shot glasses are Kind of valued by collectors of I airline wonder, memorabilia. I wonder if there's somebody who has all of them. I don't know, but I found these on eBay and it was like $20 for the set of five. So they aren't like really worth anything, but they're kind of cool like aviation memorabilia. A lot of collectibles aren't valued by the general public. They're valued by the people who are interested in that subject. Oh, totally. Yeah. So maybe like somebody who was a Southern pilot they're really cool but anyway so deregulation happened in 1978 as we have covered so many times on this yes. podcast southern airways had some serious money problems because it couldn't compete with non-union airlines the government cut a lot of their subsidies for essential service to small communities because infrastructure projects actually improved the U.S. interstate systems. Right. And people started to drive to airports that were farther away. So it was more convenient. Yeah. So it was way more convenient for some people because there were more flights and without the connection, their fare was lower. So because of the infrastructure, people started to drive to airports that were farther away. This made many of Southern Airways routes kind of obsolete. So when you couple this with some serious increases in the price of jet fuel, hmm. in July of 1979, Southern merged with North Central Airlines to form Republic Airlines, and the route of the aristocrats then came to an end. Republic was acquired in 1986 by Northwest Airlines, okay. which continued to operate the Memphis hub, and Northwest Airlines merged into Delta Airlines in 2008. I was going to say, I was like, I haven't heard of any of these. North West sounds slightly familiar. I'm like, Delta has their hold on that area now. Oh, yes. Because all the regional. Southern and, and North Central all merged together, and then yeah. they merged to be Northwest, and then Northwest merged into Delta. Delta really closed the gap on that one. So any questions on uh, Southern Airways? No. Okay. So let's just go on with the date. Give it to me. November 14th, 1970. 1970. So on this day, the Marshall University Thundering Herd football team chartered football. chartered a Southern Airways DC-9. Okay. They chartered the jet for a football game against the East Carolina Pirates in Greenville, North Carolina. Is this like college sports? It's college ball. Yeah. Okay. The team played their home games in Huntington, West Virginia. Okay. That's a town about 50 miles south of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. 
The team normally traveled by bus. However, most of the games they played were easily drivable. In this case, it was an eight-hour drive. That's tough. Yeah, to get to Greenville, North Carolina. And, I mean, maybe they had charter buses? In this case, they actually chartered a plane. The flight was the only flight that Marshall football team had planned to take all year. And as such, the DC-9 was pretty full of people. And other than the 37-member football team, it also included eight members of the coaching staff, 25 boosters, two pilots, two flight attendants, and the charter coordinator, who was an employee of Southern Airways. Okay. That's a total of 75 people. Because they chartered it, it was basically them, their people, and that's it. That is it. Okay. Yeah. Because you just buy out the whole plane. Now, I know your dad's involved in football and has Uh been for a long time. Don't laugh at me, but I had to look up what a booster was. I know what it is. (laughs) Is it's, It's somebody who like helps get money either for gets, the team. Or either helps get money or gives a lot of money, whichever. I know that not only because my dad was and is involved in football, but our team was very good. This season so far had not been going that great. Oh. They'd only won three of the last five games. Unfortunately, this game would be another loss for them, but not by much. They lost to the Pirates 14-17. So they... Did one leg on the plane, got there, played the game, lost. Lost. So what yeah. the trip we're talking about is them returning home. So with spirits not at their highest, they all got back into the DC-9, Southern Airways Flight 932. Yeah. Well, at least you don't have an eight-hour... I mean, I don't know what's no. about to happen. It's an hour But at 15. least you don't have an eight-hour drive. An eight-hour bus ride after... Being sad. Yeah. But like I said, the special charter flight done just for them and their only flight of the year, they typically did charter this flight because it was such a long drive. Okay, so this was pretty kind of regular. Normal. Their next and final game of the 1970 season was just a week later on November 21st, and they were going to play Ohio State in Athens, Ohio, mm-hmm. to which they'd take a bus. Yeah. Because it's not that far. The DC-9 got loaded up okay. after the game, and the Southern Airways charter coordinator... Mm-hmm. sat up front in the jump seat between the two pilots. This was the time before like ballistic doors. Yes. Would they even have a door? They would have a door and it would lock, but it would be a very, it would be like a lav door. Right. So he's like, hey guys, how's it going? How's work? He doesn't want to ride in the back with- With the sad people. <laughs> well, he doesn't want to ride in the back with the football team because it's not- It's not anyone he knows or yeah, can relate exactly. to necessarily. He's actually- like a coworker of the two pilots. Yeah. Okay. And you were about to say that you've ridden in jump seats. In the jump seat on in... a on a seven seventeen, which is oh, okay. very similar to this. Yeah. It's not terribly uncomfortable. It's more comfortable than a seven thirty seven. So it's a good but view. But not as comfortable as a like passenger a, seat. Yeah, not as comfortable as a passenger seat. The flight was just an hour twenty minutes and was scheduled out of Chill. Kins- out of Kinston, North Carolina at 6.15 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it was going to Huntington, West Virginia, landing at around 7.30 p.m. or so. That, like you said, beats an eight-hour drive. Oh, for sure. So around 7.20 in the evening, they got clearance to descend to 5,000 feet. And then they were told that the weather was, quote, rain, fog, smoke, and a ragged ceiling at the airport. Smoke? It just, yeah, smoke was reported. It's November. Those seem like all contradicting things. Rain and fog go together. Rain, fog, smoke. Rain and smoke don't really go together. Well, it's West Virginia, and it's mid-November. West Virginia. And it's in the 70s. Sorry. And a lot of people are going to be burning wood for heat. Okay. There's also that makes coal, more sense. At this time, there's also coal-fired power plants. 
And could, with the rain, maybe the lower clouds have trapped the smoke. Absolutely. So you could see that, why there may be smoke. Got it. And then what was that last one? Ragged ceiling. What on earth is the ragged ceiling? So that ceiling? means like parts of the clouds are kind of hanging down lower than other parts. It's not a flat base. It's like up and down. If you flew right, right along the base, you would be in and out, in and out, in and out of it. Right. Okay. The tower controller who reported the weather at 655 that night said... Quote, I thought the visibility was remarkably good, but about Mm. 10 or 15 minutes after that, fog formed very rapidly, and that's when the visibility came down. It was right over the field. It just seemed like it formed very rapidly, and it just actually Mm. sank right over the whole field. So that's a quote. That's tough. Yeah. Fog is really tough. I I mean, it really messes up your... Have you ever landed in fog? Definitely. It It really is. It's really tough? Yeah. The last time, the last couple times I landed in fog was auto land. Okay. And this wouldn't have had that or? No, it did not have auto land. However, the weather was still above the landing minimums, which means they could start the approach procedure. So not good, but it's not impossible. You don't have to go divert to another airport. Um, They're hoping that they'll they'll do the procedure and see the airport. Hoping they'll see the airport. At 7.34 p.m., Southern Airways... 932 reported that it was established on the localizer approach. That means they were following the chart and they were doing the procedure. And as we talked about in the last episode, the localizer gives you horizontal guidance, Mm -hmm. but no vertical guidance besides it tells you when you get to this point, descend to this. It doesn't actually give you like a descent path like an instrument landing system. But you know your altitude. You know the altitude you're supposed to be at. Yes, it's on the chart. But do you know the altitude in which you're at? Yes, absolutely. Right, okay. Right. But the crew started talking about capturing a glide slope, which there was no glide slope installed at the airport. What's a glide slope? That's the vertical path that would lead you down to the runway. Like you have a horizontal path, literally Mm -hmm. a needle that does this left and right, and you follow the needle. The vertical path literally goes up and down, and you follow the needle. Okay. So it like crosshairs. Got it. If it goes up, you fly up. If it goes down, you fly down. So there's a level of confusion, though. I don't think they f- were f- actually followed the glide slope, but there's obviously some confusion because they're like, oh, I have a glide slope. And then the other guy's like, I don't think there's a glide slope here. And he's like, yeah, but it's reading. I, I don't. they have like talked to the tower? Yeah. And but asked? They didn't, they didn't ask anything about the glide slope. Do we know the experience of the crew? We do. Okay. And they were very experienced. And experienced in this type. Yes, in this type of aircraft as well. Okay. After they talked about the glide slope, they called the tower and they were cleared to land. The Southern Airways DC-9 started a normal descent as per the chart, Mm -hmm. but they were supposed to stop descending at 1,250 feet unless they saw the airport. Then they could go below. Does that make sense? Okay. So they kind of come down to like a plateau and then they'll just go straight until they see the airport or they don't. If they don't see the airport, they do what's called a missed approach. They fly away and they do the procedure again or make a decision where are we going to go. If they see the airport, then they'll land. Well, they were supposed to descend to 1,250 feet unless they saw the airport. Okay. They didn't stop descending. But there is no indication that they saw the airport. Instead, the descent continued for another 300 feet for reasons that we don't know. Apparently without either crew member actually seeing the airport lights or the runway. However, they called out their altitudes and they made other calls. They kept descending. Maybe they thought they saw the airport or... I'm not sure, but I feel like they're somewhat confused. They turned off the autopilot because the pilot flying reported, who's the captain, reported it 
as acting sluggish, quote unquote. Is that a typical thing? At least not in modern airplanes. I mean, I've never heard of something like that, like buffering. (laughs) The first officer who was the pilot monitoring and doing the call outs said, 1,000 feet above the ground, rate and speed good. Okay. And then the captain replied, see something? Like a question. Yeah. The FO replied, it's beginning to lighten up a bit on the ground here at uh, 700 feet. We're 200 above. Normally, it would mean that they descended to 200 feet above the minimum altitude that they were supposed to level off. Okay. And the charter coordinator, who's sitting in the center seat behind the crew, replied, bet it'll be a missed approach. Meaning, he doesn't believe that they're going to see the runway. So they're lower than they're supposed to be because they haven't seen the runway, we can assume. I don't think they've seen the runway, but they are lower than, than they're supposed, than they're to, supposed be to be already. Correct. But and o- they're being like, you see the runway or you see something, you see lights like. Right. And they're they're like, we're not going to see it. But they think that it's looking like it's clearing up. They're going to go all the way to what's called the missed approach point where you're going to level off and you're going to just start a timer and you're just going to keep going until you get to the missed approach point at which play at which point if you don't see that airport you're gonna go fly away but they're already lower than their yeah and there's some confusion as to why they're lower over the next 12 seconds the dc-9 descended another 220 feet hmm. and the co-pilot then called out 400 now they're supposed to be 500 feet above the ground at this point which was 1250 feet yeah. but he just called out 400 feet somebody is very confused and I they don't might both know who. Be very confused. They might both be confused. That would be a hundred feet below where they were supposed to be. Yeah. If they were at the right spot. Right. And the captain asks, that the approach? But I'm not sure whether he's asking, are we on the right procedure or are those the approach lights? Like at that that's a kind of a weird thing. That the approach? So if he wanted to be more casual with how he said things. He can. And he clearly was. The phrasing confuses me. I'm not a pilot, but it seems to be confusing you as well. So it could very well be confusing our co-pilot. Like I said, and I'm not sure whether he means, are we on the right procedure? Or do you see the approach lights? Or is this the approach? I'm not sure. Just one second later, the co-pilot says, 126, 100. Feet off the ground. Yep. Southern Airways. And they haven't seen the airport. No. They should be well above this. Southern Airways 932 clipped the top, the treetops. I was going to say this sounds like the last story. The right wing fell sharply, yeah. causing the airplane to roll nearly inverted. It crashed into a hollow, nose first, as it collided with the trees on a wooded hillside. I don't understand. There's, they were... He, I mean, I don't understand either. I know you were just reading a transcript. Was there any panic in the voices? It just sounds like only the last call where the co-pilot says 126, 100. And that being like you're too low. The DC-9 burst into flames mm. as it cleared a swath of trees. Ironically, the length of a football field and nearly as wide. Most of the fuselage was <sighs> melted to a quote powder-like substance. No. However, some Large pieces were scattered throughout the burned area. The National Transportation Safety Board reported that the accident was, quote, unsurvivable. The remains of all but six passengers were identified. The airplane crashed nearly a mile, 1.3 kilometers from the end of the runway that they intended to land on. 
So they were pretty they were kind far of far away. away. You're showing me the crash right now, but it's yeah. like you can identify like part of the plane, but the other part of the plane is like, like you said, just like just nothing. Nothing. The crash we talked about last episode was, it was almost instant, but it was like they almost crashed on the runway practically right. because they were so close. They crashed These on the guys airport. were not close at all. No. I mean, they were like nearby so a few days later an indoor memorial was held at their field house Mm. and the next week another outdoor memorial was held in a stadium Mm -hmm. classes in marshall which is the college along with the last football game were canceled obviously and a mass funeral was (sighs) held at the field house and many of the dead were buried at the spring hill cemetery some together Mm. because the bodies were not identified among the boosters on that plane were a city council member, a state senator, and four doctors. Wow. 70 children lost at least one parent in that crash, and 18 were left with no parents. I mean, this is a small town, obviously. Like, Yeah, it's a small town. Those four doctors, was that like all the doctors that were in the town, and they all went to this college, and like know. you suddenly lost... You basically you- lost like... A big part of the community. Everyone probably knew someone. Definitely. In that in that size of a town? Oh, yeah. Several memorials were built in the area. One reading, They shall live on in the hearts of, the, of their families and friends forever. This memorial records their loss to the university and the community. The crash of Southern Airways 932 is considered the worst sports-related air tragedy in U.S. history. Yeah, because we care about sports so much in this country, will make a lot of news. It did make a lot of news. It being the biggest one, I'm not surprised. I've never heard of anything like it. So the deeply ironic part is that the team originally planned to cancel the flight. No. But they changed plans last minute and they chartered the Southern Airways DC-9. Was it like... Before the game even happened, or was it? Yes, it was before the game even happened. They were going to cancel and take a bus. And drive. Hmm. So let's talk about what happened. So sometimes the NTSB doesn't have answers. So they say the cause was... Remind me what NTSB is. The National Transportation Safety Board. They're the investigators. Okay. They're the investigators of the crash. The NTSB said that the probable cause of the accident was the descent below the minimum altitude during a non-precision approach under adverse operating conditions without visual contact with the runway environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly what we... That's what happened. Yeah. So sometimes the NTSB just says what everybody already knew. Right. Because they don't have answers. They don't have a why they actually did this. Correct. The plane that you did the story about on uh, History's Greatest Mysteries. They're like, we don't have anything. Right. We know what happened. We don't really know why. The NTSB made some, maybe this happened, maybe that happened kind of statements. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have anything hard. As well as some recommendations like exactly the same recommendations that they had made two years previous in Piedmont 230 crash, where they recommended the adoption of ground proximity warning systems. Hmm. As we've heard in... They didn't have that yet in on, this. Even it wasn't required. It was just recommended. It's recommended. As we've heard on this podcast before, it's that... Caution. Terrain. 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 Pull up. So, okay. Here's the best I can do. I think the first officer was looking at the wrong instrument. I okay. think he was looking at what's called the radar altimeter instead of the aircraft altimeter. The aircraft altimeter tells you the height above sea level. 
Mm. The radar altimeter tells you the height above the ground. Ground, right. But you said both of these pilots were experienced. It, experienced pilots crash airplanes all the time. That's true. So it, it not doesn't necessarily have to do with that. You know, here's the thing. In mountainous areas, looking at the radar altimeter can cause problems. Because if the airport is on a hill mm-hmm. and the town that you're flying over is in a valley, the radar yeah. altimeter is going to say 500 feet. Right. When the truth is, you're not you're not even above the airport. You're pointed right. at the hillside. Right. So my best guess on this one, and again, they don't know, but we have the, all we have is that CVR where the co-pilot says 400 feet and then one second later, he says, 126, 100. So you can imagine that they're 400 feet over the valley, and right. then the ground starts to slope up. But And suddenly they're 126, and, and then suddenly trees. they're 100. And That's trees. trees. They were pointed at the hillside. That is the best I can do on but this one. it sounds very likely that that was the case and why he was giving out the numbers that he was giving out, there was no reason for them to be descending below the minimum level in which they should be before they see the airport. Okay, so let me tell you about this really quickly. So let's say that their minimum is 1,250 feet. Yeah. But the elevation, let's say, is 600 feet. Mm -hmm. So that means they'd be 650 feet above the ground. Well, let's say they're looking at the radar altimeter and they're 650 feet above the town Mm -hmm. but not 650 feet above the airport which is what they should be right so their radar altimeter would read 650 let's say that was the minimum Mm -hmm. 650 but that's not how far they above the they are above the, the the airport right so again conjecture on my part but what strikes me are the similarities to piedmont 230 my next question is how close is this to where the Piedmont one was? It's not the same airport. No, it's not the same airport. It's about 100 miles south. Right. Because I was waiting for something to be tied into the curse. And well, we just got a really tragic sports-related crash. Well, in the in the previous Piedmont 230, that was about 50 miles north of Point Pleasant. And right, it was this, really close, which is why you could think, one, oh, maybe it's... this one, it's about 50 miles south of Point Pleasant. They're, they're 100 miles apart, those two airports, oh, but oh, Point oh, Pleasant oh. is in the middle. Oh, okay. It just, I don't know. We have a lot more data here, but it's the suddenness of this accident again, right? right? They went from everything is okay to literally hitting the trees in a literal way. One second. The weather was roughly the same. The terrain was very similar. Mm -hmm. The airport was laid out very similar. Two years later, the NTSB kind of came back with the same recommendation. The same recommendations. So how soon after this did that become a requirement? So I don't have an answer for that. Okay. When EGPWS or ground proximity GPWS was mandated, but it was mandated eventually. Good. So it was, but... It took a while. Because as you know, when a governing body makes a recommendation, but then allows for the company to do what they want, they won't do it. I mean, that's just, most of the time, that's how that works. Right, because they're looking at the bottom line. Right. So why would they go spend literally $100,000 on each of their airplanes? 
Because lives are more important. I agree with that. But that's the moral you looking at it, not the capitalist you. They're like, I want to get my big bonus this year. I big and fancy and important. I mean, I think that's fair. But let me ask you a question. This is 1970. But today is 2022. Mm -hmm. I hope we're not ending on this. Because I'm sad. (laughs) That was tough. You said at the start of this that this was going to be more of a mystery. And it is mysterious how, like, in a way it is. Because it's like, how, why did this happen? We don't have answers and neither does the NTSB. It doesn't really go with the spooky season theme that we were going for in the first episode. Well, in the first episode, we, we started with spooky. We ended with a crash. And in this episode, we're just starting with the crash. Okay. I need, I need some spooky, and I want to feel a little better than I feel at the moment, because well, right now I'm just sad. <laughs> well, in March of 1976, the town of Point Pleasant was rocked in the middle of the night by a huge explosion at the Mason County Jail. Housed in the jail was a woman named Harriet Sisk. Okay. She'd been arrested for the murder of her infant daughter. On March 2nd of 1976, her husband came to the jail with a suitcase full of dynamite... <gasps> To kill her and himself and to destroy the building. He was successful at all of the above. The building was leveled. Both of the Sisks were killed along with three police officers. Wow. They really don't check your shit back then (laughs) (laughs) when you go into a prison. During the 1970s, many coal-fired power plants were being built in the Ohio River Valley, Mm -hmm. including a large coal-fired power plant called Willow Island. In 1978, was it on an island? I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't look it up. In 1978, two generators were being added, and with those, they had to add cooling towers. This was okay. in addition to the two smaller units that were already installed. Well, they completed Tower 1 in March of 1978, and Tower 2 was approaching completion and had reached the height of 166 feet, or 51 meters. But just after 10 a.m. on April 27th of 1978, as the third giant bucket of concrete was being raised, the crane (gasps) that was pulling it up fell inside the tower. Oh, so this tower is... Really, one of those huge cooling towers. I feel like I see those more from like a distance or in movies. I've never like seen one... Up close. But the height was 166 feet. So really tall. Agreed. And then this was probably like, I mean, you could probably fit like 200, ap- fe- 200 feet across probably. Yeah. I was going to say like a small apartment. I would say it's, well, I mean, anyway. You need a buildings expert. <laughs> Just after 10 a.m. on April 27th of 1978, as the third giant bucket of concrete was being raised, the crane that was pulling it up fell into the inside of the tower. Wow. The concrete that had been poured the day before was still wet and it began to collapse. Concrete began to unwrap from the top of the tower and started falling in on the scaffolding where 51 men were working. (gasps) Thousands of tons of concrete, wooden forms, metal scaffolding fell into the center of this giant hollow tower. All 51... Oh my gosh, I want to see a video of that. I I don't know if there is have one. No, I'm sure it doesn't exist, but... All 51 construction workers on the scaffold were killed. That does not surprise me, but that is very unfortunate. Co-workers identified the remains by the contents of their pockets. Ugh, that sucks. In early 1978, 
A freight train derailed at Point Pleasant and dumped thousands of gallons of toxic chemicals all over the place. The chemicals contaminated the town's water supply, and some of the local wells had to be permanently abandoned, and they remain closed to this day. Right, because that stuff can take a millennia to decompose. You hit that one because it's due to the presence of forever chemicals and heavy metals. But that wouldn't be the only train accident. In 2015... I'm sure we got some weird shit coming down the pipeline. Oh, God. From that, or that already exists, some rabbits with three eyeballs or or (laughs) fish, fish that can walk. This wouldn't be the only train accident. In 2015, in Mount Carbon, West Virginia, a CSX train hauling 107 tank cars full of crude oil from North Dakota to Virginia derailed and caught fire, which is... Mount Carbon is 85 miles from Point Pleasant. Mm-hmm. It resulted in a huge oil spill that also caught fire, subsequently causing large and violent explosions as some of the other tank cars overheated and exploded. These explosions Yeesh. could be heard for 50 to 100 miles <gasps> and reached up to 1,000 feet in the air. Fire was so intense that the National Guard was called out to help fight the fire, but they couldn't do anything about it. Wow. So they let it, at least in part, burn itself out. And you know something bad about that oil thing? I know you said a lot of it caught on fire, but they're also right by a river. Yep. Because I'm looking at Google Maps. The fire and explosions destroyed one home and forced the evacuations of hundreds of families and caused the temporary shutdown of two nearby water treatment plants. When all was said and done... Because they're right by the river. Yep. When all was said and done, 19 rail cars carrying crude oil caught fire with each car carrying 30,000 gallons of crude oil. That's 600,000 gallons. That's. I think that's a lot. I think you could categorize that as a lot. (laughs) But again, in 2017, a train carrying a, quote, undisclosed amount of coal derailed and spilled its contents into a tributary of the West Fork River, causing the contamination of drinking water in the Shinston area. Here's a quote from the Sierra Club, which is a bird club. (laughs) Quote, the biggest concern would be when there's a long-lasting exposure to the water quality source. We would hope in this case that it would be cleaned up quickly and that the contamination will pass downstream very rapidly. Because, you know, it going downstream <laughs> solves problems. Right. I it's don't... not your problem anymore. It's those guys over there's problem. Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, they're thinking about wildlife because they're a bird club. What did you say? Sierra Club. Sierra Club. So can't have the water. That affects the fish. I mean, oh yeah, the wildlife that eat the fish that live in the forest nearby. Like, it's a trickle down or up effect. Literal trickle down. But let's give credit where credit is due, okay? Prior to these two accidents, the NTSB, who also works on train accidents, made a bunch of rail safety rules. Okay. But they left it up to the companies to, quote, police themselves. And I feel like throughout history, we've heard how that does not work. Yay, capitalism. And this was in the 2000s that they made these rules. 2017. They didn't make these rules until then. They made the rule in 2014. but they, Even though railways have been some of the very first ways uh, that we've transported stuff across this country. But things were not over 
with Mothman. Like Talk we, about circling back around. Like we, said back. In, like we said in the last episode, on November 20th of 2016, a man took photos of what he believed to be Mothman. Yeah. And we looked at those last time. The photographer gave the pictures to local news station to a local news station, claiming he took them while driving on State Route 2. The station I hope he pulled over. The station aired the pictures in a, on the 21st of November of 2016. Did he take them on a phone or a camera? I'm just he curious. He took them on his camera phone. Okay. The images are grainy and show the silhouette of the two-legged winged creature flying yeah. around the treetops. It real I think I described it last time as a butterfly wings on a human almost. Exactly. But, oh boy. According to some a new monster lurks in Point Pleasant. This account comes what? from a, this this account comes from a book by Lon Strickler called Phantoms and Monsters. Okay, you ready? Was he made from the toxic waste? This or this? Well, was it made. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to make that decision yourself. Okay. A couple nights ago, around eleven or eleven thirty, a local young lady had a very scary sighting of a creature she described as like a werewolf, only scarier. This young lady was sitting on her porch beside the front door smoking a cigarette. It was after 11 p.m. and she heard some strange noises. She said the local dogs had been going nuts on and off all night without apparent reason. Hmm. So first she noticed some movement. Thinking it was someone walking down the railroad tracks, she looked up and saw something that, quote, blew her mind. It was, in her words, a thing that had the head of a dog almost exactly like a German shepherd, and was walking like a person on two legs. No. She said she saw its eyes, and that's when she noticed it was staring at her. She said that she became lost in its eyes. That is so scary to me. I think I've said this on the podcast before. I like tear up when things get scary and I my eyes are like watering right now. Just the image of like a dog man staring you down while you're outside and exposed. What would you even do in that situation? So, I feel like any other she- description she she says she can't recall. After seeing its eyes because she got lost in its eyes. But she did say that it was dark colored, covered in fur, about six feet tall. Yeah. And this was nighttime that she saw this? Yeah. Okay. And she stated several times how the eyes drew her in. Mm. She said the creature took a couple of steps toward her. (gasps) And at the time, she saw a flash of light. And then the creature looked towards the direction of the light. And with a very quick movement, spun around and took off in the direction it came from. The brief flash of light was from her mother's headlights as she turned onto their street. Oh, God. She repeatedly asked her mother if she had seen anything near the railroad tracks when she was near home. Her mother said she had not. But guess what? We have a YouTube um, audio clip today that we're going to that we're gonna listen to. No way. We're going to listen to a YouTube audio clip. You know okay? I have to go to bed after this, right? Now listen Am I going to gonna be able to sleep? We are going to listen to a story as told by a woman named Lilith Dread. This comes from her YouTube Not channel. Not that last name. Dread. I know. In the first part of the video, which we're not going to listen to. Okay. Because it's like 12 minutes long. In the first part of her video, she recounts two sightings of this werewolf going back to the 1960s. Huh. However, she adds her own at the end. And that's what we're going to hear. Are you ready to listen? I don't know. Do you know the... I'm nervous. 
it's we're not it's just it, she's just telling a story though she's not like i thought we were maybe gonna hear some creature sounds i don't want to hear that okay i i can handle that i was born and raised in the small county of greenbrier west virginia it's a beautiful place nestled in the appalachian mountains my family has lived in this area for generations and i'm proud to have my roots here I grew up exploring all the forests and streams and hunting and fishing with my dad. It's a simple life, but it's one that I cherish. Unfortunately, though, I've been offered a job transfer to another state, and even though I'm reluctant to leave, I know it's a good opportunity. I'm heading to Roanoke, Virginia, just a few hours' drive south. But since I have such deep roots and great memories here, one thing I really wanted to do before leaving was I wanted to go hiking one last time at Beartown State Park to soak up the beauty of the local wilderness. Beartown is known for its unusual rocky formations, massive boulders overhanging cliffs and deep crevices. Basically, it looks like a surreal landscape and you can really get lost in the massive rock formations. So that's why I found myself on a Saturday morning in early April setting out to walk Beartown. The day was chilly but sunny. I had packed a lunch to eat at the top of one of the rocks. I figured I would spend the whole day there, walking around and just reflecting on the area. But about an hour into the hike, things started to feel off. I began to feel like I was being watched, and not by the usual suspects like deer or squirrels, but by something else. I had been here so many times I could never count them all but something about this feeling was very different. I tried to shake it off, but it persisted. I started to wonder if I was really just more nervous about moving than I had thought, but as I was pondering that, I heard something following behind me. It sounded like heavy footsteps, crunching leaves, crunching with each step on the ground, but every time I turned around, there was nothing there. I began to walk faster, but the footsteps kept pace with me. And then I heard something else, a deep, guttural, growling sound. And it was definitely coming from behind me, from whatever was following me. I turned around again, but still saw nothing. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move, something big and hairy. And it was dodging in and out of the trees and the rocks, staying just out of sight, but definitely following me. I started to run, but it was no use. Whatever was following me was faster than I could ever be. And then before I knew it, I could feel it closing in on me, which is not a feeling I can describe adequately enough to get you to know and understand how that felt. This time when I turned around, I could see it. It was a large furry creature with yellow eyes. It looked like a cross between a bear and a dog, and it was walking on two legs. I was paralyzed. I had never seen anything like this before. I didn't even dream things like this could exist. And then in my head, I heard it. I swear I heard these words. You're trespassing on my territory. It came in like a low, deep growl. You need to leave now, is what I heard. And it was definitely coming after me. I turned and I ran as fast as I could, but it was still right behind me. I could feel its hot breath on the back of my neck. And then, just as it was about to catch up to me, I swung around with my backpack, out in front of my outstretched arms. I was swinging it, swinging it like I was holding a baseball bat. I don't know how I had the courage to do it, but I managed to connect with its head, 
which stopped it for just a split second. I'm sure I just surprised it, but at least it gave me those few seconds of time. I turned, and I ran the other way as fast as I could. But this time I literally didn't look back until I was out of the woods and back to my car. I had been hoping to see other people when I got to the parking lot, but it was completely empty when I got there. I paused, and I looked back towards the woods, but there was no sign of the creature. Nothing at all. Not even moving in the trees. I climbed into my car and drove away, trying to make sense of what had just happened. I'm still not sure what that creature was. And also, whatever that thing was, it definitely wasn't friendly. Okay, so that happened in 2021. Okay. And that's from a YouTuber, and she's just recounting something that happened to her. First, I would love, and maybe this doesn't even exist, if somebody's ever done like an artist rendering of this, like of the Mothman. I wonder if there's a photo that you could find and put on your Instagram. So now there's... So now in addition to Mothman and the rest of that stuff, there's a werewolf. I love this kind of stuff. And I like to think that this kind of stuff could be real. Because there's been so much of the world that people haven't seen. Yeah. The part of that story that makes me not believe it is when she said she'd been hiking for an hour. Right. And this happens. Right. And then she runs all the way back to her car. Right. No, that's a good observation. You're skeptical. I mean, people who hike obviously like have that a little more endurance than the average person. And she says that she's been hiking like her whole life. But in my skeptical part of my mind, it feels like a creepypasta. And maybe it's an idea she got from stories the that, other she had stuff heard that she had heard because that she does might re- actually be real. Well, she does. Re- she does say in the beginning of this video, like I said, I uh, this is just the the ending. She says in the first part of the video that she tells the tale of two sightings of this werewolf going back to the 1960s that she had like grown up with and heard her whole life, like the tales of right. this werewolf. So. Yes. I mean, so what you're saying is... And you said she's a YouTuber, and I don't know, like, what else she does, but people do lie for clicks and views all the time, and we do know that. But let's wrap this up, okay? It's been long enough. I mean, could... How long do you think you could hike in an hour? I could hike, like, maybe a couple miles in an hour. Yeah. Probably three. Yeah. And I could not run back the whole way. No. And like at top speed with something chasing me. No, that wouldn't be a thing. But just to like play devil's (laughs) advocate to myself, they say that like you're escaping like a murderer that's captured you. You can run longer and faster than you ever could in a normal situation. And she does say how terrified she was. Right. I'm not legitimately like she's like, I'm I can't convey to you how scary that is. I could see how this could be so real. Like this the first one we heard about the woman who was smoking a cigarette outside, I totally believed that. But when I heard that bit of the story, it put up a little red flag for me. I understand. But let's just go ahead and wrap up this episode, okay? And here's where we're going to wrap it up with some statistics. Okay. According to the CDC, West Virginia ranks number one in opioid deaths per capita 
beating out its nearest competitor, which is Kentucky, by nearly twice. Wow. It also ranks as fourth on the poverty list, being beaten only by Mississippi, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and New Mexico. It is also the fourth most dangerous place to work. Really? Yes. And has the sixth worst education system in the wow. United States. Yeah. However, despite all those industrial accidents that we talked about, it's not even close to the most toxic place to live in the United States. In fact, West Virginia doesn't even rank in the top 10. Toxic as in like Like materials. Okay. Polluted. Yeah. The distinct honor of the most polluted state in the United States goes to the great state of Delaware. Uh, Okay. Delaware is polluted because of it is the home to DuPont Chemical. Mm. So Got it. It's also the home to a lot of car manufacturing and chemical manufacturing places. Yeah. And prior to like 2000, car manufacturers dumped all of their paint. Yeah. Like they would paint and they would just pump it out the roof mm-hmm. into the atmosphere. They don't care because... They don't care. This they is knew the it. cheapest they way. They knew it was a problem. They for sure knew it was a problem. But... Here's the question. Let's go back and talk about Cornstalk Curse. Yes, I would love to. I presented disasters of Mm -hmm. all kinds. I presented two aircraft accidents, both sudden and almost without explanation. It's almost would make more sense that the curse was you're never going to change your ways. Well... So you are going to make your own bed because you are these bad people who do not care. Therefore, everyone is going to suffer. Let's revisit it because I think it's important to hear the words again. I was going to ask, actually. I'm excited to hear it. Here were the words of the curse. And I'm not trying to influence you. You tell me what you think. Okay. I was the border man's friend. Many times I saved him and his people from harm. I never warred with you, but only to protect our wigwams and land. I refused to join your pale-faced enemies with the redcoats. I came to the fort as your friend, and you murdered me. You murdered by my side, my young son. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this land. May it be blighted by nature. May it even be blighted by its hopes. May the strength of its people be paralyzed by the stain of our blood paralyzed thing kind of goes to my point of you you do these bad things you are these bad people and if you have so much bad coming out of you that's all you're gonna get back again i don't don't think i'm qualified to speak intelligently about curses but you're not a witch but i i'll say it's i think it's an interesting trajectory so there hasn't really been any change to make up for the curse on the land now as a counterpoint, I believe I could potentially present a lot of areas in the way that I've presented this. That's what I was curious about. I'm like, I think America I, is not. I think I could present a lot of the United States in the way great. I've presented these. Yeah. And, and you're right. The United States is not great. They killed Native Americans all over the South, all mm-hmm. over the Southwest, all over the Northwest, all right. over Montana, all we over could talk about the, the Great the Plains. Trail we of could tears. talk about that. Right, and we could talk about like all, that whole area. We could talk about the colonization of the United States in a way that was basically sixty million people here, mm-hmm. and virtually none of them lived. Yeah, 
So I'm not like saying a cornstalk curse. I'm simply saying. We made our own bed. We did it. We made our own bed. And you get what you give. Exactly. We can do better than this. I agree. So anyway, that's it. That's all I have. That was intense. It's a ride. Yeah. I hope I can sleep tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So Mothman and werewolves and curses and all. Mothman I was not as scared of. That werewolf creature. Yeah, the werewolf. I mean, the Mothman, like, he was, like, up and out of reach. I mean, he could land near you, I guess. But he never, like, attacked anyone or tried to. Did you know some moths don't even have mouth parts? I think I did so know that. So they can't like really do anything except like fondle you with their legs. <laughs> it is Which it that seems they don't... a lot like hentai or something. Right. Yeah. Hot. And you s- mentioned earlier like while we were taking a bathroom break that you couldn't list your sources. Do you just have so many? Oh, okay. Yeah. I actually did want to address this. So in my sources, I started listing my sources. I got to about 35 <gasps> and I stopped. Yeah. And I said... Because there were so many small articles, Mm -hmm. West Virginia, like county papers and books, of course, Wikipedia, but from Wikipedia stems like 10 from each. Mm -hmm. I I literally probably got to around 40 to 45 sources and I'm just not going to read them. There were so (laughs) many. That would be a lot. Yeah, there were so many. I think just going all the way back to the beginning of this episode, that shows people exactly how much you put into this podcast and why it doesn't come out like twice a week or once a week like some people's podcasts do right and yeah it's not just a conversation i'll just sit down and we talk that's not right or i mean i know you've sometimes before like your story with erica you used basically one source because a guy had done a lot of the research already yes. and written a really good book. And I know other podcasts like... But it was a 160-page book I had to read. Right. So <laughs> it's like other podcasts, they've seen a documentary that got perfectly researched and they take their notes off of that and then they just have to watch for an hour. Yeah, these aren't like that. No, you, some of these stories I know I've never heard of and that's probably... And a lot of people haven't heard of probably because it's never been something that has had a lot of press coverage beyond when it initially happened. And for the record, there is a Canadian television show called Mayday that does Hmm. a lot of reenactments of accidents and stuff. I never use anything from Mayday. Oh, yeah? Zero. Because you want to create your own story. Correct. Because I don't want them to influence my story. I never watch Mayday. I never look at Mayday. I, I, I am 100% no Mayday. Mm. So just as an aside. Not that you're against the show, I think, is you're not saying that. It's just you want to no, make your I own want, product. Correct. I want to create I think my own is product. Great. I draw conclusions on my own. I do not take them from another person because I am an expert. Yeah. And I did read both of the transcripts. I did read both of the accident reports for Piedmont 230 and for um, Southern Airways Mm -hmm. 932. I read all of those accident reports in their multitude of pages to understand what was going on. And so, like I said, I don't want a show to dictate to me what... What happened. What they think happened. Right. Or what their conclusion was. Wow. 
well, I appreciate you having me back on. I love being on this podcast and thanks for that sharing was a it. lot more intense than I expected. Thanks for sharing it and thanks for uh, being on and continuing to share this podcast with other people. So, Are you going to give me more decals to hand out now? Yeah. Awesome.